when I was uh, born again in, in 2006, um, that summer I worked at a, at a camp down in Ponca, Arkansas. And, um, and I started meeting a, a number of just, you know, very kind and um, yeah, just a number of believers there. And they all went to a church in Sedalia, Missouri called Maplewood Church. And so as I was, you know, just become a Christian myself, I began to pray, like, where would the Lord have me to go? And it was evident by all these, these uh, believers that I was meeting that he was drawing me to Maplewood, where uh, Pastor Eddie Brown was the pastor. Eddie, how long did you uh, pastor Maplewood then? Or your... your, your uh, between 80 and 90 years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or 27. Oh, 27 years, okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you, you pastored for many years very faithfully there at Maplewood. And uh, honestly, guys, I just praise God for putting a shepherd like Pastor Eddie in my life at that time. I'd love to tell you stories about how he reigned me in and, and started teaching me how to uh, love other people. And he led by example. And he taught the word faithfully. And so as Joseph and I were talking a, about, I don't know, a month or two ago, we were talking about this, this final Sunday in November and wanting to reach out to a, a, a friend to come and preach. And, and I had mentioned Pastor Eddie. And so Joseph said, why don't we ask him? And I thought it's a long shot for him to be able to come all the way to Kansas City from Sedalia, especially on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. But praise God, he was willing. And it just so happens that um, years ago, I remember a conversation with him where he told me, if I remember correctly, that your favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. Okay, his favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. And so the, the women of the church just finished their study on the book of Ruth, and I just thought, man, in God's providence, wouldn't it be awesome if Eddie could come? And sure enough, God's brought him here today. Um, and I even messaged him this morning and said, uh, Pastor Eddie, don't even come. The, the weather, I, I'm just concerned about you driving all this way, and... He sent me a text and he was already on his way. And so I just thank God for his faithfulness and his desire to come and preach the word to us. So would you guys welcome with me, Pastor Eddie Brown. Before I go up there, I want to find out something. Can you hear me? I do some supply preaching now and I was invited to speak at a little church in Sedalia, East Sedalia Baptist Church. I went to the church, uh, the first song that we sang, the first time I was there, was the song that has in it the, the lines, Prone to Wander. You probably don't know that song. Some of you do. Some of you old people do. Anyways, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, that part didn't particularly apply, but I am prone to wander. I don't like to stand behind a pulpit. I like to get down, especially in churches like the church that I pastored for so many years when people would sit towards the back. Well, I like the freedom to come join me. You know, I, I hate to be up there the whole time. I mean, why, why segregate the pastor way up here? Why can't he be down here with you? That was kind of the way that I felt about things. And so yeah, I wonder quite a bit. Now, is the phone set up to record? It is. Yes. Well, I, I promise you, Samuel, I will go up there. And well, they, can, they can hear you online, too, from the front pastor. Okay. You know, okay. We might have to change you up there today. I'm just going to tie you to the whole thing. 
years ago, I got a magazine from the seminary that I went to, uh, not as good as Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, some of you attending there, I believe, and some did, uh, a place called Dallas Theological Seminary. And in this magazine, it showed a cartoon. It showed someone introducing the speaker for the day. And the speaker who was introducing the speaker for the day said, and he's from Dallas Theological Seminary, so I know that he's marvelously prepared, he's, he's studied, he's, he's just ready to go. And then it's a split screen in the, in the cartoon. You can see behind the curtain, you can see this guy who's sort of scribbling furiously, you know, trying to come up with the message. And then the one introducing the speaker says, and I'm so looking forward to what he has to say. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out what I have to say today as well. Uh, the problem with asking me, Samuel, a month in advance or six weeks in advance is I have too much time to think. And I, I think, well, maybe I could approach it this way. How, how can I approach the group? After all, it is an amazing book in the Bible. And yet there's so much in it. And I would like to cover the group in one, in one session. That's what I'm trying to do today. Is there a Cowboys game today? There is one. What time? What time? I'm just trying to find out when I need to quit. Uh, I asked, I came to some of the, some of the people here this morning, and I asked uh, about how long does Samuel preach? And some, some I think there were singers who said, Two hours or so? <laughs> they really weren't sure. Samuel, I was under the impression that you always try to keep it under an hour. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm aiming for under an hour. So. This is a book that I want to leave with. I brought it today. I must leave with it. Please help me putting it down here in case it isn't used. This wonderful book of Ruth. In the early days of the New American Nation, one of our emissaries to Europe was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a marvelous character in history. You may be familiar with the name Walter Isaacson. He is a biographer, historian and biographer. He has written biographies of great men, among them Leonardo, Walter Einstein, Steve Jobs. Think of that. He puts Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, in with this group of people. But one of his best biographies is his biography of Benjamin Franklin. When <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin was an emissary for America during the Revolutionary War, he was sent to France particularly to try to raise funds to fund the war against the British. While he was there, he spoke with many people, the intelligentsia of the day, and the people who were so terribly impressed with themselves, aristocratic people mostly. As he dealt with them, he decided that he would introduced them to a work of literature that he had come across. 
And he read aloud to them a little book. He described it as an oriental tale, a love story. And they were all amazed. And some said, well, wherever did you find this wonderful story? And you can imagine their surprise when he said, in the Bible, it was the book of Ruth. Obviously, the intelligentsia, the aristocratic people, uh, the philosophers, the people who were enlightened in Europe did not know anything about the Bible. Well, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. We don't know how old Ruth is or how old Naomi is as we enter this, but Naomi is probably under 40 years of age. And I want you to listen to the first six verses and think in terms of your own life and think in terms of summarizing your own life to this point, whatever your age, in 150 words or less. That's what we have in the first six verses. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the women, or the woman, was bereft. Same word as in verse 3, left. The woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Less than 150 words. Can you imagine all that she felt? Naomi. She's the one who is in all of these words. Rudyard Kipling talked about six faithful serving men. Newspaper journalists are trained to ask questions and to answer questions so that they can give a good accounting of what the news of the day is. And they ask questions like, you know, who and what and when and where and how. And if we ask those questions of this text. Verse 1 says, It came about in the days when the judges governed. And you know something about the days of the judges. It was a time, if you want to turn one page back in your Bible, you'll find the last verse of the book of Judges. It says, And in those days, this is what it was like in the days of the book of Judges. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Imagine a traffic situation where everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. Chaos. Anarchy. 
And the horrible things that we read about during the book of Judges, the gruesome things at times that we read about. But our own society today, our culture in which we live, in which God has placed us, much like those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then in verse 1, we can see some of the what and what we're concerned about in this text. There was a famine in the land. Now, we don't know what caused the famine, but you can imagine, can't you, that before there was a famine, there probably was drought. We have experienced drought, this El Nino that we've experienced over the last months was on the hills of a drought the year before. Central Missouri, where I live, one of the hardest hit areas One of the hardest hit counties is the county in which I live. And the worst part of that county is the section in which I live. And I watch farmers as they faithfully put the crops into the ground, but wondered if it would yield a harvest because of the drought. And it must have been something like that. Maybe, and we're not told this, but we can only imagine that if we were to read the journals of Naomi, perhaps, that she might say something like, well, uh, today Elimelech uh, planted the last seeds, the last kernels of corn that we had, and planted them in hopes that there would be a harvest. And then the journal entry that followed a couple of weeks later, there's been no rain, and we're giving, we have little hope that there's going to be any vegetation. And... You can, you can see how it might have developed. Well, there was a famine. And it says in verse 1, and a certain man of Bethlehem. Now, here's the great irony, isn't it? What does Bethlehem mean? What does the word itself mean? Bethlehem. It means house of bread. It was in a section of Judah called Ephrathah. And... Believe it or not, there were other Bethlehems in that uh, land of Israel, but uh, this is the one that's in Ephrathah. It was an area that was generally a fruitful area, Beit Lechem, house of bread, a place where you can depend on finding good crops and, and grain. And now there's drought, perhaps, most probably, and there's certainly famine. And so this certain man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Now, for some people, that throws up a red flag immediately. He left Israel. He went to Moab. And everybody knows you're not supposed to go to Moab. It's a horrible place. It was a place that was peopled by those who were against Israel when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so they would have no truck with the Moabites. And males from the 10th generation could not even enter into the temple in Deuteronomy, it says. So why would he go to Moab? Surely this was against God's will. And of course, the 
the Jewish rabbis assumed that it was against God's will, and they proclaimed that he had left God's will, and that that was why all the horrible events that we just read about took place in their lives, because he left the land of promise, and he went to the land of Moab. But we're not told that in the text. What we are told in the text is, however, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is not a time period when people had the word of God. We have the word of God. They had nothing. They didn't have an inscripturated word of God. They couldn't hold it in their hands. They couldn't read it. Now, if you read the entire book of Ruth, which we will not do today, you'll see that there are people in this book, Boaz. I'm going to get just a little ahead of myself. But he goes to greet some of his workers, people in his workplace. And he says, may the Lord be with you. They say, God bless you. May the Lord bless you. Yahweh, the personal name of the one true God in the Old Testament. Boaz uses that. And his workers, the people with whom he's come into contact, the people whom he has influenced, respond likewise using the personal name of God, Yahweh. Here was a man who was a man of influence, certainly, and he changed the atmosphere wherever he was. People saw him. They saw a life that he lived. They saw that he was a respectable man. And when he spoke about his God, they listened because they had seen him. He didn't witness just with his lips. He witnessed with his life. And so his witness was effective and it was used. And people's lives very likely were transformed in that little area, even in this horrible period of the judges. But I get ahead of myself. Well, it says that this man from Bethlehem went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And I can't tell you that it was against God's will for them to go to Moab because I don't think that it was. When you read the whole book and you see what God orchestrated with his sovereign power in all of his providence, you see what God was working. Why wasn't it even a part of his plan, even to the point of of using something terrible like a famine, something awful, something tragic like a famine to bring about good. God so great. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, God can strike straight with a crooked stick. He can accomplish his means and his ends rather with, with means that are less than perfect with people like us, you and me. In verse 2, And the name of the man was Elimelech, and of course his name means my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and her name means something like pleasant or pleasantness. And their two sons, and Malin and Killian, and their, their names mean like, this is, this life is tough, and... It's not going to turn out well, and these are desperate times and sickly, just communicating that uh, things are tough. 
And they entered into the land of Moab and remained there. In verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now, I don't know what your life experience has been. I don't know what difficulties you've suffered, what losses you faced, what tragedies you've endured. You've certainly endured some. You understand something about grief. Your life has not been perfect. You've had to adjust. You've had to face things that you did not want to face. But here is a woman, and again, we don't know exactly her age. They married young in that day. 14 or 15 is not out of the ordinary. She had two sons that then married. They could have been born to her when she was 17. They could be 15 or 17. She could be 35 years old. And think of the tragedy that Naomi has now faced and suffered in 35 years of life. What would you feel? What would be in your heart? What would be in your mind? What would you think? What would you think and then find yourself horrified at? How can this be in my mind? I don't want to think that. I don't want to think bad thoughts about God. I don't want to be angry at God. We don't know what was in her mind, at least not yet. We do hear it later in the tale. But we're looking at all that has taken place, and one of the questions that we would very naturally have would be a question that she asked. We know Why did this happen? Why me? Why this? Why now? Now, sometimes in life, you live long enough to see the answer to that. Sometimes you don't. We can think of the story of Joseph. Of course, in the book of Genesis. And we could remind ourselves that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, half-brothers, some of them. Sold him into slavery, into Egypt. They hated him. They were jealous of him. He was the favored child. My granddaughter the other day told my wife that she knew that she was Poppy's favorite. Now, I've got nine grandchildren, and I, I you know, quickly had to set that straight. You know, I love all of my grandchildren equally. You're all special. You know, but, but I have one that thinks she's really special. She's the one that comes and has lengthy conversations with me. So you be the judge of whether that's special or not. But what would be in her mind? She loses a child. 
she loses another child. She loses a husband. She may or may not get to see an answer as to why. Not everyone like Joseph lived long enough to find out why the horrible things in his life had happened. And Joseph, of course, went ahead to Egypt in a time of famine when the brothers or the sons of Jacob went to save their their families from famine. Joseph was sent ahead to prepare the way for them so that the whole family could be saved. But he saw the good that came from all the struggles that he had. But you and I may not see those struggles in our lives. We may not see the good that comes from them. Well, we read verse 4, and again, we've read it, but they look for themselves, or took for themselves, Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. So now we have answers to some of the who's, and, and if we want to ask a question of time, uh, they were there for 10 years, and then Malon and Kilian also died and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And that's how she feels. She feels bereaved. She feels abandoned. She feels forsaken. And truly she is. She is in a foreign country. She does not have any means. She went there impoverished. She lived there just on the edge, living completely on the edge. She's probably malnourished. And now she is bereft of the breadwinner, we might say, the one on whom she relied, her husband, her sons, older people rely on their children to a great degree. She relied on them, and now they're all taken away. How does she feel? Verse 6, things are changing. God, in his providence, has made a difference in Israel. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. And so she gets up, she goes. And I won't go through the story of how she leaves Orpah behind and Ruth is resolute in her determination to go with her. And where, where Naomi dies, she's going to die. She's going to be with her. But we get to verse 19 in chapter 1. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, it, it had been over 10 years since they had seen her. She had grown up among them. She had some relatives and distant relatives among them. But now she's coming back. She's a weathered woman. She has faced tremendous hardship. She's faced tremendous grief. And now she comes back. She's, again, likely malnourished. But she is coming back. She's weakened after a trip of 75 miles from Moab back 
to uh, Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. Uh, she arrives in a weakened condition, and they are looking at her. And you can imagine, here come these dusty travelers. They're coming in. They're walking in. They're anxious to get to the well in the city to find some water. They have nothing but literally the clothes on their backs. And people are looking at her and thinking she, she looks vaguely familiar. Is this Naomi? And of course, it was. And so in verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So now we're, if we were reading in her journals again, we would read things just like this. Those private thoughts, the things that you don't want to be out there in public, the things that you don't want people to know that you think and you're horrified that you're thinking those things, but she's thinking those things. Why me and why this and why now? And Lord, why did you let this happen? It feels as though you've gone out against me. The Almighty has turned against me and He's stretched out His hand against me. And how can this be? But that's what she's feeling. She went out full with a husband. She had two sons and her, her family felt full and, and she felt whole and they were taken away from her. And so now she feels empty and she comes back empty, she says. In verse 22, so Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. So, in verses 22 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2, the narrator is telling us something that, that Ruth does not know about. Naomi knows it, but she hasn't thought about it yet. But the narrator is preparing us for what follows. And what follows in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 are some customs that are very unusual to us. Again, it speaks of things like gleaning. You haven't gleaned lately, most likely, but in this society, God's provision, according to Deuteronomy, or rather, for, uh, according to Leviticus, for those who were bereft as Naomi was, those who were orphans, those who were widows, they could go into the fields that were being harvested. And you know this, you understand this, and they could pick up that which was left behind. And that was called gleaning. So Ruth is going to glean in the fields. And in this book are customs which are strange to us because we're not going to consider it, but you'll see the marital customs. Now, I don't know if uh, you have ideas about what a biblical way to get married is. I remember seeing someone listing 21 different ways uh, that were biblical ways to get married. And I, back in the early 90s, before many of you were born, uh, there was uh, published a book which was saying that this is the only way that anyone should approach it. 
and it was through a system of courting and guidelines were written down and everybody had to do it this way or you weren't spiritual. And then someone went through and showed 21 different ways from the Bible that somebody had gotten married. Well, this is a very unusual way to get married. And you can read it in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, there's an odd custom that we'll just briefly touch on. If someone was not going to help out a close relative, he would take off his sandal and give it to someone else who might. Again, just an odd custom, but those are the things that we're just going to fly past. In giving that sandal to his other cousin, he was signifying that he was not going to help the cousin in need. Okay, just briefly flying past those things. And now, the narrative continues in chapter 2, verse 1. The narrator tells us, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. The word kinsman, many of you will know, is the word goel. And the verb galah means to pay a ransom. There's generally the exchange of money involved in this sort of transaction. But the kinsman was a cousin, a close relative, who would help out another relative who had fallen into debt. It might be that land had to be bought back. Maybe it was mortgaged to the hilt. And so land had to be bought back by this close relative so that it could stay within the family. It might be that, and here's another strange custom, that a woman would be essentially bought, paid for through this system of ransom, but she would then become the wife of the person who paid the price to get her out of whatever debt situation she was in. And so we read, now Naomi had a kinsman, a goel of her husband. I'm sorry, this particular... Okay, it is goel. Uh, Now Naomi had a goel of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now isn't that a beautiful word? She happened to go to that field. Do you think she just happened to? Do you see God's hand in this? Can you see the sovereign Lord working out his eternal purpose? There's much at stake here. What if she'd gone to another field? What if she had been beaten by some of the people who did not appreciate Moabites coming into their land? Again, there was prejudice towards people who were from Moab. There was an ancient history of of hatred between the two nations, Moab and Israel. And now a Moabitess comes and she goes into this field and she happens to go into the field that belongs to this close cousin of Elimelech. God is working. 
God in his great power is working his plan. So, what we continue to see is that God is so great, his plan is so marvelous that he is willing to bring even a Moabite back to Israel to bring about our great salvation. Now, think in terms of an overview of the Bible, and some of you will be familiar with this, I'm sure, but I like to give an overview of the Bible in four words, and those words are very simply creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. If you think creation, God made everything perfect. He made it everything beautiful. He made and created a state of shalom, perfect peace, everything just as it should be in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam and Eve chose against God. They rebelled against God. They sinned, and they, that was what theologians call the fall. And, of course, everything unpleasant in our world came about after the fall as God's bringing judgment into the world because of Adam's and Eve's sin. But immediately in chapter 3 of Genesis, where the fall takes place, immediately redemption is beginning. And you can see the early signs of God's redeeming humanity, God's working to bring about the repair and God fixing everything that's broken in all of his creation, uh, beginning with the human heart, uh, the corruption that is in the human heart, and God working to redeem Now, that word redeem in this book means to pay a ransom. It means to buy back generally from slavery, especially if you bring in a New Testament uh, version of the idea of redemption. But God is working his plan of redemption, and you see it all throughout the book of Ruth, God finalizing that in the new heavens and the new earth uh, in Revelation 21 and 22 in his recreation. But... Here, God is working redemption, and he does it uh, through bringing a woman who is referred to many times as Ruth the Moabitess. She can't shake that name. She's got a negative title that goes with her name. Every time her name is mentioned, Ruth the Moabitess, she is. God brought her into his history. Now, what you see in chapter 2 is that she happened to go into the field of Boaz. Boaz is someone who is a close cousin of Elimelech, and he can play the role of redeemer, but he is not the closest person, the closest cousin, the closest relation. There is another one closer. And Naomi, in chapter 3, tells Ruth that she should go and approach Boaz and seek him to be a redeemer for her, a goel, a kinsman redeemer for her and for Naomi to uh, help them out financially. There's that odd process. She goes uh, up to the uh, place of harvest, In the middle of the night, after midnight, she lies down at 
his feet to signify that she is asking for his protection, for him to spread his wings of protection over her. And he says to her, don't let anyone know that a woman came here. And you know, there are all sorts of explanations that go into this and questions as to whether anything untoward happened or not, but because we have two people of honor here. I believe that what is revealed in the text is all that takes place. You have uh, her coming in the darkness. You have her making requests for redemption from uh, this man of honor. And you have him saying, uh, you will go home uh, tomorrow morning before light. And first, there's another possible redeemer that has to be approached. And that's what we see taking place in chapter 4. So in verse 4, now Boaz went up to the gate. Of course, the gate was the place where major transactions took place in any city. If, if, uh, and he approaches those who are there, men sitting there. They are probably among the leader, leadership in the city of Bethlehem. It's not a large city. But he sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And so uh, this closer Relative says, yes, I want more land, I'll buy it. And then Boaz explains, now the moment you buy the land, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess as a wife. And at that point, he says, no. That's when he takes off his sandal, he gives it to Boaz. And when he does that, there is his symbol, his uh, public signal that he is not going to redeem Ruth, and now Boaz is able to do it, and he says, then I will redeem it, and you are witnesses that I am purchasing the field that belonged to Elimelech, and I am acquiring Ruth the Moabitess for my wife. Now, all of that uh, took place uh, uh, in a matter of, of months through a couple of harvests, the barley harvest and mid-April and then on into June, but within just a few months, all of this has taken place. Um, and it's a, a beautiful story of love. This beautiful story of redemption. But we have unfinished business. We think about the anguish that Naomi felt when she lost her husband, she lost her sons, she was completely impoverished, she came back empty, she had gone out full. And how, what's her heart like now? What's she writing in her journal at this stage? Well, at the end we see a perfect resolution to that situation. Verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth 
She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now you see Naomi, the grandmother, you see her sensing that she is full again. The emptiness and that feeling of emptiness and that anger at God. She's dealt with that. All that is in the past now. She's feeling blessed by God. She felt that as early as chapter 2, that God was restoring His favor and was taking care of her again. And now you see that this negative emotion of hers has been dealt with fully and finally. But still... Why would God cause a famine? Why, what can we see in the providence of God? Why would he allow that to take place? What is he trying to accomplish in human history? We read again in verse 17 that the son of Ruth was Obed. He was the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David, the king. But that's, that's not all that we know. Because if we go to the New Testament, for instance, if you'll turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and I don't know if that, yes. Uh, if you'll, you'll see that there are four names that are highlighted in this. It's a genealogy. And uh, genealogies are terribly boring and it's so easy to skip right over them even the new testament ones but uh, this one is the record of the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob and jacob the father of judah and his brothers judah was the father of perez and zerah by tamar now here is a woman there are four women who are listed here of course this culminates uh, with Mary, who is the wife of Joseph, who is in the line of King David. And that becomes important because all of this genealogy shows us that Jesus, through his legal father, Joseph, had the right to the throne of David. But here is a woman mentioned, Tamar. And it's odd to mention women's names and genealogies in this society that really was a patriarchal society. It was odd that women would achieve that notice, but here's a name. And we skip down to verse five, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Ever wonder why Boaz wasn't married? He's such a godly man. You can see it if you read the text closely, if you have the time to do that. But he's an older man by this point, and that's stressed in the text. He's impressed with Ruth because she didn't go after men of wealth or young men, he says. 
just because they were wealthy and young. He's implying he's old, and he was older. Why would he not be married? He's a catch. He's a man of substance. Why isn't he married? He was the son of Rahab in the King James, the harlot. Now, Tamar's character was questioned. She was called a prostitute. Rahab was called Rahab the harlot. She too was a prostitute. And then you come to the next line. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Here is Ruth's name. Who is Ruth? Ruth the Moabitess. You've got two women who were sometimes spoken ill of in the Old Testament. And then you've got someone who is from another ethnicity that was uh, from a country that was hated by Israel. And then we continue. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. And there you see the name Bathsheba. But if you look at the original, it's not in there. Now, she was so notorious in the Old Testament that her name was not even included in the genealogy. She's referred to as the one who was of Uriah. That is, the wife of Uriah. And David the king committed murder, committed adultery, and yet God, in his sovereignty, chose to use Bathsheba to give birth to those in the line, ultimately, of Joseph, the legal husband of Mary, the legal father of Jesus, and the one who gave to Jesus the right to sit upon the throne of David. How, how odd that these women, every one of them, with some question hanging out there about their character. And then you come to Mary. Do you recall those lines in John's Gospel where Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and he says that you are of your father the devil? And the Pharisees respond, we are not born of fornication, implying that he was. So you have Mary, who had to explain to everyone around that she was with child by the Holy Spirit and not in any normal earthly way to which we're accustomed. You have five women in the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, whose character was questioned. Now, what, what is the Lord seeking to stress here? Well, it's, it is amazing that these women are mentioned in the genealogy. 
But you and I have to come to the conclusion that God is able to use people who have a past. Do any of you have a past? I have a past. Everyone has a past. And the Lord is so great. And his mercy is so wonderful. And the cleansing power of his redemption is so great that he is able to use people like us who have a past. And then we are still back to that issue of why. You know, why does God allow such tragedies in life? What can God bring about or how can he bring about good from tragedies like Horrible deaths, grief and loss. What can God accomplish through that? You know, here in Kansas City, if you were out and about, and what's today? Sunday, I guess. Yeah, Sunday, right? Yeah. Uh, tomorrow, Monday, some of you will be on the highways, and you will be listening to the radio, perchance, if you are running late and you're wondering about traffic patterns, you may be listening to Waze or some app, but you may listen to the radio. And if you're listening to the radio, you'll hear about the slowdowns in I-35 North on the right shoulder. There's a car on the shoulder and people are slowing down to look at it. Now, what does a car look like on the shoulder of a highway? Does it look a lot like cars out here on the side of the street? Parked beside your house at home? Does it look a lot like those cars? Just in a different place? What happens when there's a car parked on the shoulder? People slow down to look at it. But it looks just like a car parked any place else. But people slow down. But then there's someone who doesn't slow down. He just looks at it and he runs into the rear end of somebody in front of him. But you've got an eye in the sky, and he's able to look at the whole scene and go all over the city of Kansas City and tell you about the slowdowns on all the highways, and he's able to see the big picture of everything in the traffic patterns, and he can tell you why there is a slowdown. And that might make you feel a little bit better to know why. Well... You and I don't always have that big picture. We don't always have the capability of finding out why in our lifetimes God allowed those horrendous circumstances, those tragic things that we endure, those things that gave us grief, that caused us anxiety, that sometimes made us angry. We have to confess sometimes we have been angry at God like Naomi was. Sometimes it feels a little better knowing that good came from that suffering that we endured, that eye in the sky. And again, Joseph was able to understand why he had been sold into slavery so that he could go to Egypt, so that he could line up resources, so that when his family was facing famine, their needs could be supplied. God did all of that. He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it to good so that 
He could save the family alive, Joseph says. It helps when we know why, but we don't always find out why this side of glory. But God is at work in human history. The Lord uses big things. He uses little things. He uses hard things. He uses things that cause us to give Him praise. But the Lord has a purpose in your life for what He allows in your life. Again, here's a young woman who lost her husband. She was in great poverty, she finds a daughter-in-law who stays with her. That daughter-in-law is looking for food. She happens to go into a field that belongs to the right man. God leading her to the right man at the right time. And he marries her, this refugee from Moab. And when he does that, he is... God is working to fulfill a prophecy that was made in the book of Micah that his Redeemer, his Messiah, would come out of where? Bethlehem. This same place. The house of bread. And God was orchestrating all of this so that those people, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, Mary, could be in the lineage of the divine Son of God, the Messiah. And you have to look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, because God orchestrates human history there also, because uh, Joseph and Mary are up in Nazareth. It's, I don't know, 40 miles, a hard walk, especially for a pregnant woman. And she probably didn't have a donkey. They were poor. But... If you were pregnant, would you want to ride a donkey? But it's a long walk. But God brought them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius or Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee up to Jerusalem because of the heights and up to Bethlehem at the same height, some 2,500 feet above sea level. He went up to the city of Bethlehem, uh, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And then here we have God bringing this family, this couple, to Bethlehem for the birth of his own son in fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. 700 years before Christ was born, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And here's God orchestrating human history to bring it about. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And we see God at work in human history. And we understand just a bit better that what 
Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes all things or all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his promise. Would you, would you bow with me today? Our Father, we are thankful that you have worked in human history to bring about a redeemer and redemption. We thank you for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Lord, that you used sinful people, you used people just like us to bring about what you wanted to accomplish. And you were not finished. You still want to use people just like us. So, Father, we today want to submit ourselves to you and your plan. We want to give you glory and honor and praise. We want to thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his faithful and loving sacrifice of his own body in our place for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, that you work in our lives to bring about good to those who love God, even to those who are called according to your purpose. And we pray it in Jesus' name.